Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Larson, executive editor of Power Magazine, and you're listening to the Power Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Michelle Moore. Michelle is the author of the book, Rural Renaissance, Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power. So, Michelle, thank you for coming on the program, and please tell a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into writing this book. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's a real blessing to join you. And um, and it was a real joy to write Rural Renaissance as well. I am from a small town myself. I'm from LaGrange, Georgia, which is in a predominantly rural county, Troop County. I'm right on the Georgia-Alabama line. And um, after spending almost 25 years in the clean energy and sustainability space, you know, I just realized that I had never really done anything that would have directly helped my grandparents all of whom, you know, moved off the farm and uh, went to work and, and worked their entire lives in the cotton mills in the community where I grew up. And through the, the work these past couple of years to the organization I lead uh, through Groundswell, you know, I had an opportunity to really, you know, take what I'd learned back in service to my hometown and communities like the ones where I grew up. And um, I really just wanted to share that story, but also just, more importantly than that, share a lot of good ideas, you know, with, with some good stuff we can get done um, in our hometowns, in our rural communities to help really connect the economic promise of this clean en- energy transition that we're all living through right now to community economic development so that our hometowns are all places that people can come back to, can move to, can stay in, you know, if that's what they want to do. And um, that folks don't have to move the city just for the promise of a job. Yeah, I actually am from a small town myself. I grew up uh, on a farm in rural Minnesota and went to a small public school where my graduating class had 20 kids in it. So I can understand where you're coming from when you talk about the rural community. And we did have uh, rural cooperative electric companies in our area, and it was very important because it was a, a community-owned type system. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that influenced you in, in the writing of this book? So many people don't know, you know, or have never experienced just the tremendous power and potential of rural electric cooperatives. As you shared, as your growing up experience really demonstrated the rural electric cooperatives are member-owned, so the people who buy their electricity from rural electric cooperative utilities actually own the utility, and they also participate directly in its governance. The boards of rural electric cooperative utilities are meant to be democratically elected by co-op members, um, so it's really energy democracy in practice when co-ops are working at their best. There are more than 900 of them around the country. Uh, they serve more than half of America's landmass, and uh, they serve tens of millions of customers as well. So, you know, they're, they really could be the heroes of uh, local clean energy futures, you know, particularly because the democratic governance combined with the fact that, you know, they're nonprofits that are owned by their members very deeply connect rural co-ops to community economic development. In fact, 
it was uh, the primary reason that co-ops began to be created nearly a hundred years ago in uh, the early part of the 20th century, you know, leading into the 1930s, uh, which was when America was fully electrified. Yeah, it's really interesting to look back at the history that that has uh, happened to get power out to these rural communities. How do you see the Inflation Reduction Act factoring into some of these uh, systems going forward? Well, just like you said, you know, rural electric cooperatives in the 1930s were were created to electrify America, and that was done under um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt under FDR as a part of the New Deal. Before then, and this is going to sound like a very familiar story to a lot of people because it's the same thing that we're struggling with to get broadband to rural communities. It's one of the same things that has been a challenge to getting the value of clean energy to rural communities, too. And that was that back in the 1920s and 1930s, big privately owned uh, electric utilities, many of which are still around today with similar names, um, made the case that it was just simply too expensive to run wires to farms. So they argued that electricity was really, you know, a luxury good that was there for people who could pay for it. And um, only cities and industrial areas had electricity. Farms couldn't turn the lights on. And um, if you can imagine, or, or some people may still have this memory in their families, right, from, from growing up around the old folks. You know, what would it be like to try to wash your clothes? Or, you know, do your homework or cook a meal if you didn't have electricity. It just made so much more work for everyone during the day, including what at the time would have been traditionally women's work. And it made for a harder life. And um, when the federal government under FDR created institutions like the Tennessee Valley Authority or the Rural Electrification Administration, it made the opportunities available um, that finally allowed farmers to turn the lights on. And it happened very quickly. You know, over the course of under 15 years, more than 95% of America was electrified. Well, the moment that we're in right now with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which includes a whole lot of uh, investments in clean energy and climate-resilient infrastructure that also help fight inflation by reducing our energy bills that have gotten so high. It is the largest single investment in rural power in 100 years since you know, we turned lights on on the farm. And um, the, the potential for rural communities is really enormous whether we're talking about things like the nearly $10 billion that rural electric cooperative utilities now have access to through USDA, you know, to build more clean energy projects and to retire, you know, old coal plants that are often more expensive to operate now than the solar farm. And uh, whether we're talking about EV tax credits that uh, will help people cut their fuel bill for their cars, um, by giving you tax credits not only for a new car but for a used EV and then giving you tax credits to help you put an EV charger in at your home too um, or whether we're talking about the many rebates that will be available next year through your state um, to help you insulate your home or install a new much more efficient heating and cooling system uh, the opportunities for rural America are really, really myriad and um, it's going to take a lot of creative, committed, 
local leaders, you know, to make it happen. Washington is good at creating incentives and setting goals and kind of setting the rules of the road, but Washington doesn't get dollars all the way down to the communities where we live. And it's going to take committed, innovative, local leaders uh, to start the project and to have the ideas that are going to attract those federal dollars to make sure these investments land where they're meant to land. Where are these leaders going to get the information they need to make sure that they're tapping into all of the resources that are available? Is there a a good resource to make that happen? Well, clearly in May of 2020, when I started writing this book, I did not know there was ever going to be such a thing as an Inflation Reduction Act. But um, I wrote Rural Renaissance to really be an inspirational roadmap for people. You know, people like me who wanted to, you know, do something good in their hometowns and who have a heart, you know, for small towns and for rural America. You know, the the book is broken up in a, just in a very practical way, little history up front, you know, some ideas for replication and scale in the back. And in the middle, it's all about a practical guide for energy efficiency, solar, energy resilience, which is incorporating energy storage, you know, so we create more resilient communities and businesses in the process electric vehicles, and broadband, you know, broadband, which is a necessary part of clean energy infrastructure, too, so that we've all got a guidebook and some good examples to follow. Mm -hmm. Um, Because today, while a lot of the local heroes, I think, are kind of unsung, right? Because folks are just too busy getting good stuff done. You know, they're not focused on promoting themselves. They're focused on serving their community. But there are leaders like Curtis Wynn, like Tammy Agard, like Eric Clifton, you know, out in Wyoming who are starting businesses and running programs and leading utilities and, you know, setting an example and demonstrating good ideas that we can all follow. And they're also all just a a wonderful community of people who are um, always there and available to share what they've learned and the the lumps and bumps too, right? We we learn as much from the stuff that we get dinged on as we do for the stuff that goes well um, to help others who are trying to follow in their footsteps. You mentioned Curtis Wind, and I believe you uh, dedicated your book to him. Can you talk a little bit about him and, and why you felt it was important to mention him in the book? I sure did. Curtis is a dear friend and a mentor. I have learned so much from him. And Curtis, uh, today he's the CEO of Seco Energy, which is a big electric cooperative utility that's serving Central Florida uh, up around Orlando. Um, but uh, previously, he was the CEO of Roanoke Electric Cooperative, which is now led by uh, Marshall Cherry. And together, they built the utility of the future at Roanoke Electric Cooperative. And uh, the, the co-op, Roanoke Co-op, serves a very poor part of eastern North Carolina, from the northeast, you know, over up towards the coast uh, on the border with Virginia. And... Um, the, the county areas that they serve have a very, very high poverty rate and a persistent poverty, you know, that has um, tended to extend for generations. But through Roanoke Electric Cooperative Utility, they were able to implement um, a pioneering energy efficiency program that used in future energy savings to pay for, you know, energy improvements today that help cut people's bills, make their lives more affordable while making their homes more comfortable. Um, special rates for EV charging, bi-directional EV chargers that help to 
not just charge your car, but then your charge, your car can help provide power to the grid, you know, when it needed it. They built community solar projects, energy resilience projects. And with every single program that they implemented, you know, they connected it to the economic needs of the community. So anytime the utility was saving money, um, they were sharing that savings with their membership through lower rates or through programs that help people live a little better. And on the broadband side, and they were also able to offer broadband service uh, to their member customers for right at $50 per month. And, um, you know, whether you're talking about the need to be able to access, you know, educational materials for kids, you know, in school today, including in K-12 schools, or whether you're talking about businesses that need access to broadband just to get the work done, you know, it's a real game changer. So what Curtis built at Roanoke Electric Cooperative Utility, you know, was a tremendous inspiration to me, both in writing rural renaissance, you know, and also really studying the programs he helped implement there to see, you know, how we could replicate them and, and really follow in the footsteps of his success in other rural communities that we serve, you know, particularly those that, um, you know, have, have struggled financially and, uh, you know, where people need a boost. It sounds like a great example and model that could be followed by other uh, rural electric cooperatives and, and communities throughout the country. From your perspective as the CEO of Groundswell, what do you do in that position and how do you help uh, communities? Well, Groundswell's mission is building community power. And, and we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. So our focus is really joyful service. And joyful service that's specifically, you know, targeting reducing people's energy burden. And energy burden is simply the percentage of your total household income that you spend on electricity. And for a more, you know, affluent family, for a more financially comfortable family, you know, folks are probably spending maybe 3% up to about 6% of their total household income. Keep the lights on, keep the heat on, you know, in the house. But for many lower income households in particular, you know, the typical energy burden may be more like 10%, 20%, or in a lot of rural communities, even as high as 40%. In fact, rural counties across America suffer the highest energy burdens in the nation. And it's not because, you know, people make less money. So, you know, the denominator is smaller when you're calculating the, you know, percentages. You know, it's because when, you know, you're, you're kind of living check to check, you don't have the money to be able to pay for, you know, a new refrigerator because it's more energy efficient or for, you know, a new heating and cooling system because it's going to save you money. You know, you fix stuff when it's broken and sometimes not even then. So people just have exorbitant energy bills, like four or 500. You know, we recently worked with a, a, a um, widow in my hometown of LaGrange whose monthly electricity bill was $700. Oh, my goodness. And it's not because the electricity is expensive. You know, it, it's because her house is so old and so inefficient you know, that she had to keep, you know, the air conditioning on blast just to be able to keep the home habitable, you know, at a very basic level, you know, which goes straight to people's health and uh, sometimes even to their lives, especially our elders, right, mm -hmm. where um, heat and extreme humidity or getting too cold, you know, can send people to the hospital or worse. You know, I've lived that 
in, up close and in person myself, you know, those were my grandparents' homes, my mom and papa Knott's house and my mom and papa Moore's house. And, um, and I love their homes. You know, Mama Knott's house is still more home to me than anywhere else I've ever lived in my life. But um, anytime it got cold enough to where Mama had to worry about the pipes freezing, you know, it would end up with a $400 plus utility bill. And to be clear, that did not actually keep the house warm. <laughs> that just meant the pipes didn't freeze. You know, those kinds of bills are just backbreaking. So ground spells work, you know, whether we're running an energy efficiency program or building community solar projects with local churches, building community resilience centers that have energy storage, you know, so those community centers, also often churches, um, become places that people can take refuge when there's a storm or when the power goes out um, is really all about what we do. And we work in a way that, you know, respect people and respect people where they are and how they live. And we take uh, the opportunity and the ability to serve as being real privilege that gives us great joy that we're you know grateful to be able to get up and do every day. Well, it sounds like really important work, and I'm, I'm glad you're out there doing it. Another question I have is, thinking about all of the different technologies that are available today, what do you think offers the biggest bang for the buck for these rural communities? Where can they get the most benefit by implementing a, a certain type of program, or, or what can they do to really create economic value for their, for their people? Well, I, I first want to acknowledge that um, you know energy and energy policy in this country is a really full um, demonstration of federalism at work, right? So every state kind of charts their own path to a clean energy future, and local communities have a lot of say as well. So no matter where you live, you have tremendous agency and authority to chart your own energy future. That's not decided in Washington. That's decided exactly where you live. Washington just kind of helps set some goals and some rules of the road and to provide some resources. Um, for most rural communities, no matter where you are, and as unsexy as it can sound, you know, energy efficiency is a really important place to start. Um, and that is because rural energy burdens are so high. You know, a, a lot of rural housing just needs repair and maintenance and, and upgrades, much of which can be paid for, you know, with energy efficiency over time. And you know what? You can't offshore construction jobs. So implementing both energy efficiency, whether it's insulation in the attic or a new air conditioning system, you know, those are all activities that are going to keep local people at work. Whether you're looking to Curtis Wynn as an example or Mark Casey and what he's done out in Ouachita Electric Cooperative in Arkansas, there are tons of great examples to follow and plenty of funding and financing you know, available to put those programs in place offered through USDA, through the Rural Utility Service, uh, which is the present-day incarnation of the REA that was created way back in 1933. And, you know, the second thing that I would really encourage rural uh, communities to look at is solar and energy storage, uh, which is going to help to increase the resilience of your community. And, you know, in America, and this is something that really surprised me, when I was doing the research for the book, we have more power outages than any other developed country in the world. And in rural communities in particular, the lights tend to stay out for longer. And that's not because, you know, the utilities aren't doing something that they ought to, you know, because particularly the linemen who work at our rural utilities are heroes. 
you know, they're heroic in what they do and, you know, how they're first folks out there on the ground after a storm trying to get the power back on. Um, but it's just because many rural communities are kind of at the edge of the grid and our electric grid in the U.S. is in desperate need of a major upgrade. And to your point about new technologies, you know, the new technologies that we have with solar and energy storage and microgrids and all the software systems that help them really operate at their best, it means that we can rebuild that infrastructure at the local level. So no matter what happens, you know, no matter what kind of storm rolls through, you're going to be able to generate your power locally, affordably, and you're going to be able to keep your own lights on, you know, for places that get hard, get hit hard and on the regular by wildfires or hurricanes or tornadoes or whatever the case may be, you know, again, having local resilience is a game changer that can save lives. And in the meantime, it can help save you some money. The point about microgrids is really, I think, an important one because I I now live in Florida, actually, and was in the eye of the storm of Hurricane Ian when it came ashore and our power went out. But there was a local community nearby called Babcock Ranch that has a microgrid. It was able to keep its lights on using solar and using its microgrid. And so uh, your point is well taken there. We have to face more extreme weather. Florida, of course, and, you know, growing up in, in Georgia, we would get the remnants of the hurricanes that would come through and they uproot trees and the rain could be pretty intense too. But um, extreme weather has been everywhere this summer. That's right. Um, whether we're talking about, you know, farmers and uh, out in uh, the Midwest that were just having to plow under their fields. Uh, because there wasn't enough water available um, for them to grow properly or ranchers having to sell cattle or uh, farms getting burned down in Nebraska from wildfires or the terrible floods, you know, in Kentucky. I think the, the good news is not just that we can build for greater resilience, you know, including solar and energy storage and microgrids that keep the lights on, but that the costs have come down so much. You know, uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you know, it would have been super expensive. It would have been just for companies that, you know, lost so much money if the power went down that it made sense for them to write that check. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, those technologies are much more available. And, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act has all kinds of uh, grant funding and tax credits and rebates, you know, that, that help to pay for them and, and help to get them out you know, into communities, including rural towns, you know, that, that may not have the dollars in their pocket today, you know, to be able to invest in the technologies that they need um, without some, you know, additional support coming in from other places. Well, Michelle, I've taken uh, more of your time than I had anticipated. Thank you for coming on the program. Is there any last words you'd like to leave the audience with? My greatest hope is that anyone who listens to us today or picks up a copy of Rural Renaissance will um, find an idea in there, will be inspired uh, to get something good done for the place that they live. You know, for me, uh, my passion and my commitment from this work really is from my faith. It's from challenging myself daily to think about, you know, what would our energy systems look like if they were really part of how we loved our neighbors as ourselves? So I would just commend the the ideas in rural renaissance uh, to folks who are listening as loving ideas, you know, that we can do in service to the communities that we love to. 
I've been speaking with Michelle Moore. She is the author of the book Rural Renaissance, Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power, and also the CEO of Groundswell. So again, Michelle, thanks for joining me, and thanks for all of the insight on rural communities and, and energy.